The next reading that we're going to um, go through together comes from Romans chapter 3 verses 21 to 26 and if you've opened your Bibles, which I strongly recommend you do since it's going to come in handy in about three minutes, uh, it's on, it should be on page 1092 but if it's not, just flick around and you'll find it. But now, a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There is no difference, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Christ Jesus. God presented him as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in, in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. Amen. Well friends, uh, grab an outline if you haven't yet. That will come in handy tonight. And uh, turn around, welcome each other. I'm going to get set up and I'll call you back in a moment. Okay, we're going to make a start. Well, uh, let me introduce myself. My name's John. For those who are visiting us tonight, a warm welcome to you. Please hang around afterwards. Love to catch up with you um, afterwards. But let's pray. Very important topic. We depend on God to understand this properly. So let's pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for the cross of Christ. And we pray, Lord, that tonight you'll help us see it anew. Help us to see its value uh, in our lives and the difference it makes to us. Uh, We thank you, Lord, for the cross of Christ and help us to see it even more so tonight. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it is without doubt, without any doubt at all, that what stands at the very centre of Christianity is the cross of Christ. It is the cross that stands at the centre of Christianity. It is at the centre of God's cosmic plans and purposes and objective for the whole of the universe. For all of human history, it is the cross that stands at the centre. 
It is God's centre plan. It's, it in fact stands at the very centre of the heart of God. But why? Why? Have you ever thought about why? Why is the cross of Christ so important? Why would the death, the crucifixion as, as shameful, as humiliating, as brutal as it was, why would the death of a Jewish man in the backwaters of the Roman Empire be of any importance? This is about 2,000 years ago now. Why would it matter? Why? Just a Jewish man. Was it because it was a cruel and brutal and barbaric and shameful death? Well, it can't be. I mean, many people were killed. Thousands of people were crucified, all in that same shameful, barbaric, cruel way. Or was it because it was the death of an innocent man? Was that the reason why it's so important? Well, it can't be. Jesus was not the first to die an an unjust death and he was not the last to die an unjust death. There were many thousands of others who were killed unjustly. And so why? Why does the cross of Christ stand at the very centre of what we believe? Why does the cross of Christ stand at the very centre of God's own heart? Well, you see, from the eyes of so many in this world, when they look upon Christianity, when they look upon Christians from, from every generation, from amongst our friends and our family, when they look at the cross of Christ, what do they see? They see this is foolishness. This is silly. This is stupid. You Christians would believe, would depend on, would place all your hopes on a dead man. You Christians would place all your hopes, your dreams, your aspirations, your life on a dead man. How absurd is that? How silly is that? How foolish is that? What is wrong with you Christians? And so when you hear that, when you hear comments like that, you sort of have to think, well, that sort of makes sense. Why would anyone put their hope, their, their life, their goals and, and pit everything on a dead man? Why would anyone do that at all? Sort of makes sense. And that's why Christians of every single generation have been mocked for their faith in Christ. Every Christian of every generation have been mocked and ridiculed for trusting in a dead man. Now, I've shown this before. I'll show you a little picture up here. If you've seen this before, it's good, but if you haven't, I really love this because it really shows the scandal of the cross. In 1857, this inscription on your left, my right, yep, and the pattern is outlined on the picture next to it. This inscription was found carved on a wall in Rome. Now, if you look Carefully at this picture, there's a picture of a man on a cross. It doesn't really look like a man because his head is the head of a donkey. And so a, a human body, a donkey's head, crucified on the cross. And there is, there is some in, uh, words there in Greek. It reads, Alexamenos sabetetheon, which means Alexamenos, a man, worships God. Now, what, what does that mean? Do you get the gist of what, what this image, this inscription, this graffiti is suggesting. It's actually making a mockery of Christians. 
you fool. Who would worship a crucified God? It's just like a donkey on a cross. You fool. And so why? Why does the cross of Christ stand at the very centre of not just human history, the centre of the universe, the centre of God's own heart? Why? Well, this is the very question we'll be looking at today as we come now to the eighth week in our ten-week series. You see, as foolish as the cross of Christ sounds in the eyes, in the minds of the people of this world, as foolish as it sounds, it is at the heart of Christianity. It stands at the very centre of the Bible. It is what we stand for. It is the heart of God. And, and it's fair to say, if you don't understand the cross of Christ, if you don't understand its significance and why it needs to be in the centre, you're not yet a Christian. You're not yet a Christian. Because you see, it is in the cross of Christ, in this event, that the kingdom of God is finally established. It is at the cross, when Jesus hung there on the cross, that the kingdom of God is finally established. Now remember how we've been tracing through the theme of the kingdom of God throughout the Bible. We've been working through that, we're up to our eighth week. And the kingdom of God, we're thinking about God's people in God's place under God's rule. Remember that? We've been hearing that each week. Well, we'll recap quickly now just to see where we've come from and where we are today. And so, looking at this, first week we started with creation. Remember that? Right at the very beginning, Genesis 1 and 2, we saw the pattern of the kingdom. God has established his kingdom. That was the way life was meant to be. Adam and Eve living under God in perfect harmony with God, enjoying all the blessings of God. And so that was the pattern of the kingdom. And very quickly, by chapter 3, we see the perished kingdom, the four, humanity in rebellion against God. And then into the corruption, the mess of this world, God speaks and he speaks his promises to one man, Abraham. He speaks his promises to him and there we get a glimpse of what God promises will happen with his kingdom. And then by the time of Exodus, Moses led them out of slavery towards the promised land, took them a while. On the way they got the law by which they were to live and when they reached the land after several hundred years, they had kings to rule over them. And during that time, it was the, the partial kingdom. That is, it seems like God's kingdom was on earth. They enjoyed the blessings of God. God's people in God's place in Israel under God's rule. They had kings to rule over them. They had the law to live by. It was the partial kingdom. But then, not so long after that, we had prophets. God sent prophets to warn his people, turn back from those idols. Stop committing idolatry. Stop committing adultery. Turn back to God. Otherwise, you'll be punished and exiled from your land. Well, they didn't listen. They were exiled. And so during this period, it seems like all hope was lost. It was all gone. The kingdom of God was nowhere to be seen. The people were, were, were all scattered. They were not in the land. And they were not experiencing blessings but curses. But yet during this time, is the, the period known as the prophesied kingdom. The prophets, they still prophesied, still promised the great promises of God and in fact they got even bigger during this time even though they did not experience that. And so that was the prophesied kingdom. And then last week, last week, 
finally, the king arrives. The king arrives. He is the new Israel, the new Adam, the temple of God, the place you go to meet with God. The kingdom was present in Jesus. The kingdom was present in him. He embodied the kingdom of God. As he walked, the kingdom was present in his life. It was proclaimed as he preached and as he performed miracles and exorcism, we got a glimpse of the kingdom of God. And now today, we look at the cross. We consider the cross. And today, the kingdom is finally established. The king is crowned. At the cross, the king is coronated. And then next week, we'll look at the resurrection where the kingdom is inaugurated and then two weeks' time, we'll finally look at the new creation where the kingdom is consummated or perfected. Okay, so that's where we are. Today, we're looking at the cross, the centre point, the focal point. Now, the passage we'll be looking at today, in many sense, can be called, as Don Carson, the great theologian, he calls it this, the few verses we'll be looking at today, can be caught the centre of the whole Bible. So I'd like to ask you now to turn to Romans chapter 3. And so if you understand these six verses, in one sense, you get to understand the heart of God, what God is on about in salvation history. And so let's turn to Romans 3. This is the heart of the Gospel. And so what we see in this passage is that it's not the foolishness of the cross that we see, Rather, what we see here is the satisfaction of the cross. That is, the cross achieves something. The cross does something and it was necessary. And that's why it stands at the centre. You see, since the fall, since the second week, no one ever, not one living soul, has ever lived righteously with God and before God. There was no one righteous at all. No one was able to live in perfect harmony with God. No one was able to enjoy what Adam and Eve enjoyed in the Garden of Eden. And so since Adam and Eve, since the fall, once they set themselves up against God and they dethroned God, remember? Their sin, their rebellion was that they dethroned God and they crowned themselves. They placed themselves on the, on the throne of God and set themselves up against God. That is the heart of sin. That is rebellion, human rebellion. And since that time, the world was broken it was, it was shattered and it was no more. And so in Romans from chapter 1 to chapter 3 verse 20, the verse before we're looking at today, those three chapters, Paul the Apostle was at pains to, to describe and to show that God is angry with the world. God is angry with the world because there has been no righteous person ever. God is angry. And so, I did ask you to look at Romans 3, but turn a few pages back to Romans chapter 1. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And we read this. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Now, some people find that hard to understand or hard to believe that God can be angry, that God will be wrathful, that God would in fact judge. And there are stories of some churches who, who avoid speaking of any, any notion that God would judge, that God would be angry, that God would send people to hell. But if you think about it, I can't actually understand why would you 
why you would go along that way. I mean, if God is in fact good and just, then being angry with evil and wickedness is a good thing. It's the right thing. It's the just thing. Now, some of you will know that I have three kids, Yvonne and myself. We have three kids. And when you have kids, they push your buttons. They test you a lot. They test your patience. They test all sorts of things in your character. And, and, and there have been times, it might be hard to believe, but there have been times that I've been angry with my kids, my own three kids. I won't say which one, but anyway, I have been angry. Often they're not justified, but often uh, sometimes they are. But you see, as a parent and, and as one given the responsibility to look after them, to love them, to care for them, in a sense, I have a right to be angry when one of them usurps my authority as their father, when one of, them, one of them usurps Yvonne's authority as their mother. If they say, I don't want you, I don't care for you, I want to leave. If they were to say that, I would be right to be angry, don't you think? And so how much more so would it be with God? And so God is angry. The wrath of God is being revealed against all people. And, and Paul goes on to say it doesn't actually matter whether you're a Jew, a Jewish person with the law. It doesn't matter if you're a Gentile who, who, who aren't given the law, but you have the law written on your heart. And so no matter, where, no matter whether you're a Jew or Gentile, it, it's, a, it's the same playing field. By whatever standard you have, you all fail. You all fail by your conscience, by the law, you all fail. And so by chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, have a look at that. Chapter 3, verses 10 to 12, Paul concludes, this is the predicament of all humanity. There is no one righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands, there is no one who seeks God, all have turned away. I mean, that is sad to hear, isn't it? It is sad, but it's true. You see, since the fall, there has been no righteous person at all. There has been no one with the resources within them to live the righteous life that God demands. No one. Over thousands of years or however long, billions of people, not one righteous person. Abraham, as great as he was, he was the man of faith. He was a failure too, not the perfect man. Moses, as great as a leader he was, great man, not a perfect man. King David, the greatest king over Israel, great king, great leader, not your perfect man. All have failed, there is no one righteous. And now we come to the heart of the gospel, chapter 3, verse 21. You see, here everything changes. The first two words are extremely important. Chapter 3, verse 21. But now, but now in salvation history, but now in redemptive history, but now in God's purposes, but now in the cross of Christ, there now comes a new state of affairs. There is now another way to be righteous. There is now another way where you can be found as righteous and it does not depend on people. It does not depend on our own resources but this righteousness comes from God. It is apart from the law. That is, it's apart from obeying the law, living the the moral life. Have a look at chapter 3 verse 21. 
But now, everything has changed. A righteousness from God, apart from law, has been made known, to which the law and the prophets testify. You see, this is not new. The people throughout the Old Testament, they should have been expecting this. Our first reading in Isaiah, it was expecting this. You see, there is now no way to be righteous. There was never any other way to be righteous apart from God's way. And so what that means is that there is no living person, no living soul can, that can ever claim to God. On the day we die and we face God in judgment, no one can ever say to God, I've done my bit. I've done enough and I should be acceptable to you. I, I, I should be considered righteous because I have done enough. No one is able to say that. There is no one righteous because this righteousness that has now been revealed does not come from ourselves. It's nothing we can do. In fact, it comes from God, but it is received by faith. All those who believe in Jesus, it is received by faith. Look at verse 22. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. You see, now it's never about my effort. It never was about my effort. God declares me as righteous. You see, but now it does not depend on me. Never did. But now we can see a righteousness that comes from God to us. You see, this is the only way that anyone can have a right relationship with God. In fact, it doesn't matter whether you're a Jew or a Gentile or an Australian or an American or an African or European or whatever you are, it doesn't matter. It only comes from God. And so verse 23, have a look. There is no difference for all have sinned, every single person, every living soul throughout every generation, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And now what follows in the next few verses? We see the richness of what occurred at the cross. We see what was actually achieved at the cross. We see the necessity of the cross. It was not a foolish thing. It was not just some sad accident. We see the satisfaction of the cross. We see the difference that it makes. And we see more clearly the justice of God, the grace of God, the love of God and also the justice of God. And we see why it stands at the very heart of God. You see, in the next few verses, what we'll see are three aspects to what happened at the cross of Christ. Three images are used to describe what the cross of Christ achieves. The first one is, it was the price for our redemption. The second one is that it was the propitiation, a technical word, I'll explain it in a moment. It was the propitiation for our sins. And thirdly, it was the means by which we can be justified. It is the means of our justification. Three things. We, we, we sort of need to understand the cross in a more holistic way. It's not as simple as Jesus died for me and that's it. There is more to that. It is richer than that. Redemption, propitiation and justification. So firstly, redemption. Now the idea of redemption this idea comes from the ancient slave markets. Just say, this was how it worked, you had a relative, you had a brother. A brother who was a bit silly, a bit stupid, had a bad business deal and was made bankrupt. Well, back then you didn't have bankruptcy laws and so he had to sell himself off as a slave. 
And so your brother, your silly brother, would have become a slave of someone else. Now, what you can do as the next kinsman redeemer was to pay a price. And that price was called the ransom price, to set your brother free from slavery. And so you would pay that price and your brother will be set free. And that is what redemption means. And so if the cross of Christ is called the, the, the ransom price, it, it means that the death of Jesus was what, what it costs to set us free. Set us free from slavery. And what type of slavery are we talking about there? It is, it is slavery to sin. It is slavery from the bondage and the hold of sin. It is slavery from the curse of the fall. And so this is what we see. Verse 24, have a look. So all are justified freely. This is free by his grace. That is his unmerited favour. Through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. You see, the death of Jesus means that I am now free. I'm now a free person. You are now a free person. I'm no longer bound by sin. I no longer live in the domain and the, and the hold of sin. But I have been purchased. You have been purchased by God's grace, God's unmerited favour. The price for your life, just think about this, the price for your life to set you free was the price of the Son of God. And so this should help us understand the cross in a richer way. When we look at the cross now, what do we see? What we should see is that the life there, the life of the Son of God was there to pay for our life to set us free, to redeem us. That was the ransom price. And so what that means is that God owns us. God owns us. He's purchased us and he owns us. So that's the first one, redemption. The second image we'll see here is the image of propitiation. You won't see that in your text, but it's in the footnote, but I'll explain it. Propitiation. Now, this idea came from the pagan world of temple worship. Now, in many pagan religions, they have gods for all sorts of areas of life, gods for all different domains in which they could exercise their power and their influence. And so, if you wanted a a god, a particular god to be nice to you, if you wanted a particular god to not be angry with you, then you would offer a sacrifice to this god. And so, if you went on a holiday, you offer a sacrifice to the holiday god so that he won't be angry with you. If, you wanna, if you're pregnant and you want a big, fat, white baby or whatever, you, you offer sacrifice to the fertility God so that that God won't be angry with you and give you a skinny baby. You see, that's how it worked in the pagan world, in their pagan worship. And so you will make sacrifices to appease the God, to pacify the God, to turn away the anger of that God from you. That's what propitiation means. But now let's, let's try to understand this in, in the context of the Bible. Is this what happens with the God of the Bible? Well, it works a bit differently to what we see in the pagan world. You see, in the pagan world, in the pagan temples, it was the people who offered their sacrifice and they would offer sacrifices of fruits or animals, whatever that might be. They will bring in their sacrifice to their God so that their God won't be angry with them so that their God's anger will be turned away from them. But you see, it's different in what we see here with Jesus. It's not us who offers Jesus to God, is it? Who offers Jesus? 
If you look at the text, it is God who offers his own son as a propitiation for our sins. God is rightly angry with our sins. But we can't do anything about it. If we are rebels against God, if we are enemies of God, what can we do? There is nothing we can do. We can't offer God animals and fruit or whatever we, we can find. I mean, the whole world belongs to God. There's nothing we can do. And so here we see what is needed is a sacrifice from God's own hand. God offers a sacrifice and it is not us. And in a sense, we should know this. You know, the, the famous Bible verse, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. It was out of his love that he offered the sacrifice on our behalf. It's not something we offer to God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. John Stott, great theologian who's passed away now, he says this, it is God's wrath which needs to be propitiated, that is to be turned away, and it is God's love which did the propitiating. It is out of God's own initiative that this sacrifice was offered. And John Stott, he goes on to say, God does not love us because Christ died for us. Now, what that that is saying, that first bit is, it wasn't like Jesus had in his own mind to do something on his own accord. He knew that God is going to judge us and so he steps in the middle and he says, God, judge me, punish me. Instead, it did not happen that way. You see, Jesus worked always in accordance with the will of God. He did what God told him to do. And so rather what we, how we should see it is God does not love us because Christ died for us. Christ died for us because God loves us. Do you see that distinction? Christ died for us because God loves us. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. And so God offers a sacrifice to turn away his anger towards us upon his very own son. And so have a look at verse 25. God presented him, that is Jesus Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement. Look in your footnote and you'll see the word propitiation. God presented him as a propitiation through faith in his blood. And so when you look at the cross now, what do we see? It should give us a, a, a deeper richness to what we see with the cross of Christ. Well, what we should see is that the life there, the life that was hanging on the cross, the very Son of God, was the life that bore all of God's anger on our behalf. All of God's anger that was meant to be directed towards us has been turned and placed on Jesus. That is propitiation. Of course, we must ask, why would God do such a thing? Why would God do such a thing with his very own beloved Son? Well, of course, we already know it was out of love that God did that. For God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son. But it was also demanded by God's own justice. And so the final, final image we see in these verses is the image of justice and justification. So we're, we're moving away from the uh, slave market idea of redemption and we've moved to the temple idea of propitiation. Now we come into the courtroom of justification. Three different images that gives us a fuller image of what happened at the cross of Christ. Now to be justified, 
to be righteous, to, to righteousness, they all have the same Greek root word. Once a vow, once a now, we don't have that flexibility in English. But to be justified means to be declared righteous, to be declared innocent, to be declared without guilt before God. But you see, how can that be possible? If you are guilty, if I am guilty, how is it at all possible that God can can declare us as righteous? How is that possible? You see, if we are sinners and we've done wicked and evil, it would be unjust for God to just overlook it. It would be unjust to, to, for God to say to us, I see that you've sinned, I've seen how, you, I've, I've seen how you've punched your brother or sister, I've seen how you, you've cheated, I've seen how you've done those wicked and evil things. And for God to say, oh, just don't worry about it. Um, go have a shower and it'll be all fine. That will be gross injustice, a, 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 a display of gross injustice. You see, if God turned a blind eye to all that we've done and, and said, it's okay, that will be unjust, unjust. Instead, what has God done? We see, for God to remain just, all sin, all our sins, all the sins of every single person living in this world from every generation, they all must be punished. They all must be dealt with. And that's exactly what God has done in his Son. His son is not only the ransom price, our redemption. His son is not only the propitiation for our sins, the sacrifice, but his son is also the one who bears the punishment of God on our behalf. And so we read verse 25, the second part, to 26. This is why God did it this way. It was the only way God could do it. He did this, verse 25, to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Now that's worth elaborating a bit more. What that is saying there is that the sins of all those in the Old Testament, the sins of the Old Testament faithful like Abraham and Moses and David, the sins of of those people, well in a sense God in his forbearance, he kept those sins unpunished. And then when Jesus came along, When Jesus died on the cross, it was smack bang. All those sins were laid upon him. And so in one sense you can say the Old Testament people, all those faithful of the old, they were saved by the cross of Christ. The same way we are. And so we read on. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. And so we're in the courtroom God can justify us because our sins are dealt with. God can declare to us, you are righteous. You are innocent because there is one who bore your guilt. There is one who bore your sin. There is one who bore your punishment. You are righteous. And so you see here from these few verses, the cross was absolutely necessary. Not only necessary, it was the only way for anyone to be saved. And so when we look at it, when we believe it, we can see there is redemption, there is propitiation for our sins and there is justification. That is the cross of Christ. And so when you think about these verses, far from being uh, pathetic, 
foolish, sad event in human history, an insignificant event, the death, the crucifixion of a Jewish man in the backwaters of the Roman Empire. Far from that, what we see here, the cross of Christ was glorious. We see the glory of the cross of Christ. You see, it is in this event that God brings about all his glorious purposes. It is in this event that God brings about his salvation plan, which he had right at the very beginning. It is in this event in which God reverses the curse of sin and 